This is The Hike, a limited series. Conversations with independent advisors and home office employees. Stay focused, learn something, and keep moving forward. Well, we're here again. Um, I want to thank everybody for tuning back into The Hike. As always, Andrew Evans with... uh, Val Vest. Um, and I noticed that Val has a few new items. Looks like she rearranged her bookshelf um, for anybody who has ever watched this. Looks like things have changed. And and today uh, we have a wonderful, wonderful guest, um, uh, uh, Eric Schwartz, the founder uh, of Cambridge Investment Research. Such a, uh, such a treat, uh, an honor to have you on, Eric. We really, really appreciate it. Um, so thanks for being on. And uh, now, Eric, just just to kind of bring you up to speed, just so you know, uh, so we've only done seven, we're only doing seven of these episodes, and we're actually recording this one out of order from number six, because you are a very busy man, we want to be respectful, this is when we could get you, so we're a little out of order, so it's going to be interesting. But so this is actually episode number seven. And just so you know, other things that we've talked about, uh, we started with uh, Val with leadership. I discussed a lot about communication, interpersonal communication. Uh, we had our one of our advisors, Paul Ellis, discuss uh, the importance of community. Uh, our CEO, Greg Rains. Greg, as you know, Greg, uh, with his acumen and acquisitions, we had a great talk about that. Uh, Susan Sukis from our organization talked about um, uh, women in the industry and developing them. Um, uh, Colleen Bell's talking about the advancement of technology and how that's you know aiding us for the future. Um, but I think I think the more important thing, uh, so everybody remembers this, and Eric, so you're aware. The most important thing that we talked about is uh, Val's daughter read all of Twilight, and and I'm wondering if that's why all of the books got rearranged because there was a problem. She hadn't returned the book yet. Is that what happened, Val? The gap in my books. No, I just I needed a little fresh look and it. Uh, I liked what I had there. So those are all books that I don't think I'm going to use. And so it's, I just decided to flip them around. <laughs> and Eric, you're over, in, uh, you're over in California. How are things there today? Beautiful sunny day uh, in the midst of a five-year drought. But uh, so it's the good and the bad news. But yeah, we were in Iowa till early January and that was enough of winter for me. So it's great to be able to get out here and still be able to walk and enjoy the outdoors to some degree, especially with obviously with the COVID and the need to uh, be careful where we go indoors. Right. Yeah, I, I would hope that by the time uh, we, we air this in succession, uh, uh, vaccines and so forth, uh, that rollout has progressed. Again, let's hope for that. Let's cut you off there, Val. Well, I was going to say you're also in a warm location, Andrew. I I am. Um, I know if you zoom in, see if I could do this. Uh, there's a little thing here that says Florida. I happen to be in Florida um, for episode five. I was also in Florida, and it'll be funny because episode six I won't be because when we're recording it, I uh, had to come family uh, items, had to take care of it little on the downside. However, it's nice. It's nice to be warm, Eric, isn't it? Yes. I've gotten kind of spoiled by it for the winters and uh, it's hard to get excited to go back. A little bit of snow every year is good to remind me what it's like and stomp around in a little and then run out of town. (laughs) You're good. (laughs) Well, you know what? Uh, uh, Before we get into our our topic, Eric, um, recently opened up uh, the location over in Arizona. Uh, Yes. 
I guess that was because you, you, you also wanted to kind of say, look, let's, let's help other people be warm as well. <laughs> well, basically we started this about four years ago, thinking that we should have a second location to uh, be able to recruit some people that are not easily available in Southeast Iowa, where we have our primary office. And we did a search of 10 Western cities. Since we're only one time zone away from the East Coast and two away from the West Coast, it seemed logical in order to service advisors on the West Coast more on their schedule rather than Midwest hours uh, that it would be out there. And so we started with 20 cities, got it down to 10, got it down to two, which were Denver area and Arizona, Phoenix area. And then I think while it was a close call, the weather did carry it for Phoenix to some degree because we're going to have members of our senior team, the top nine or 10 people, at least one of them are there at any given time. And obviously with winter weather flying from Iowa to Colorado isn't as likely to succeed as going to Wyoming. I mean, Wyoming, excuse me, <laughs> to uh, Arizona. And so it did swing it. It was like 5% of the decision, but mainly we wanted to be able to access people we couldn't get elsewhere and also service the uh, West Coast. And of course, Arizona is on West Coast time about mm -hmm. two thirds of the year. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't the only factor, but it was a factor. Well, you know, uh, uh, Val's a West Coaster. A lot of people don't know that. Yeah, I uh, I spent about 20 years in Portland, Oregon and Seattle, Washington. So I'm I'm fond of the West Coast. So when that when that position opens in Arizona, uh, uh, you just you just let Val know she's she's ready. to go. It's also good for Val's husband, too, because he could golf more, I bet. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Although he manages even in the snow. Well, you can save a lot of money golfing in Iowa because you can't do it for a number of months. <laughs> and the, the links are a tad cheaper, I would say, than in Scottsdale. Very true. Very true. Always the shrewd businessman. Very good, Eric. Very, very good. Uh, but I think that's a pretty good uh, lead in uh, to, to why uh, we have you here today. Again, thanks for joining us. Uh, sure. Obviously, um, you know, over over the years, you know, how Cambridge has grown, um, you know, your vision, the way that you've uh, presented things in the various publications and so forth, you know, you built it, you know, your way. I guess what we, and also the, um, as you laid out, uh, you know, we are not, you know, we are not for sale. I think you say that, what, about 85 times at the conference, maybe you might be up to 185 now. But what, what we'd like to uh, talk about today is, you know, where, but where do you see things going or where are things now? What's, what's in your mindset after this, this, you know, this illustrative career you've had, what do you see now? But before that, I think a lot of people, you know, they know you as Eric Schwartz of Cambridge, but would you give us a little bit more background about Eric Schwartz, you know, the person and how did you even get Two, how did you get to making Cambridge? A lot of people don't. Some of us know that. A lot of people don't. But I think it's a very interesting story. Okay. Well, um, actually, I made my first stock trade when I was 10. And I've, as I've told this story, I've discovered a number of our other financial advisors have had an early adoption of this. My father just used to talk about stocks at the uh, dining room table. And so it started becoming an area for me. And so we did a little of that early on. Uh, actually made a few bucks, but then I got to often to 
you know, going to school and all that. And I really didn't follow anything related to finance, investment, business, if, especially in that era. If you were a business major, you probably wouldn't be allowed back in the dorm or something or other. It was all more warm and fuzzy, your subjects. But anyway, when I was about political studies, hmm? political studies, political all political studies. studies. So psychology, religion, philosophy mm-hmm. were, were sort of more, at least where I was going to school. As, I, as time went by, I got into the business. Uh, my wife had been doing public relations for a number of investment-oriented companies, helping them get on TV or good PR, and uh, ended up, one of them was doing oil and gas investments, and we got involved with that and started to raise money for these oil and gas tax shelters at the time. So this was 1980. And actually, I formed the broker-dealer in 81 because we need to have a broker-dealer to be the underwriter for our own investment deals, so to speak. So for the first 12 years, I was trying to uh, put together these oil and gas investments. And overall, the results were pretty poor. They were probably better than the average, but the average was you lose 90% of your money. So... Well, just just as a quick aside, it, it I don't know if you saw Wonder Woman eighty four, but I think that was the uh, that was the premise of it. the The bad guy couldn't get his oil and gas deals, and he was center. Uh, he was located out of D.C. So I don't know. Is well, that's that you? I don't maybe that wasn't it, you. It's probably based on my story because I was in D.C. in nineteen eighty four. My offices were in Silver Spring, Maryland. So oh my goodness! Worlds collide, uh, Eric. This yes, is unbelievable. Well, I guess I'll have to see that and make sure they, I get, uh, I can figure out how to sue them for at least a couple hundred million dollars, I would think. At least. At least. So anyway, I got involved having a broker dealer as a side thing so that I could put together oil and gas syndications in a legal manner. And uh, 10 years later, having had limited success on the oil and gas, but various advisors that I knew who had interest in my oil programs uh, asked if they could join my broker dealer. And I was going like, I guess so. Never thought of that, but we can, because the first 10 years we didn't have any advisors. And so I started adding advisors and I discovered even though I was spending 90% of my time, 95% of my time on the oil and gas and 5% on the broker dealer, I had 20 advisors and the broker dealer was making more money than all the oil and gas deals. Plus, the stuff we were doing in the broker dealer was doing better for clients than the you know, gas deal. So in 1992, I stopped doing the oil and gas, just serviced the old programs, and actually started trying to grow the broker dealer. So basically, for three years, I spent time broker dealer. Before that, we didn't even you couldn't even sell stocks or bonds. We didn't have an insurance activity. So it was basically mutual funds and partnerships. So over three years, we put all the the basic pieces in place. We set up a clearing relationship, formed an RIA, the insurance agency, all that stuff. Meanwhile, um, the broker deal that was doing $500,000 of business a year, and yes, with 20 reps, you can do the math on the average GDC at the time. Um, we started doubling in size. So we went from 500,000 to a million to 2 million to 4 million to 8 million in revenues, five consecutive years. When we hit 4 million in revenues, that's when I hired Amy Weber, the current CEO. She was a twenty-eight or nine at the time, and I've heard of her. I've, I've heard, heard of, of Amy Weber. Yes, I've heard of her. and so and then it just you know took off and kept going. 
And really the things that drove it early on were really two things. Basically, whenever an advisor wanted to do something, we tried to say yes. The main thing that drove that was fee business. At that time, only about 1% of the revenue of the entire industry was coming from fees. And so advisors that were doing it, most of their current broker-dealers either didn't allow it, didn't like it, or were doing it but charging huge fees. And so we said, well, I talked to my lawyer. I said, can we do this? And how can we do it? Can we do it at Schwab? Can we do it at this and that? And eventually we became the leaders in the fees fee area. And our advertisements at the time were all about fees are us was literally the ad that we used. And it really hit a chord. And we started, as I said, doubling regularly. And uh, obviously the rest is more current history that some people are more aware of. But and about four years ago, like four or five years ago, Amy took over as CEO and I moved up to executive chairman. Before that, she was president and really probably acting as CEO. And uh, so there's been many great people that have contributed over the years. We still have an advisor that's been with us almost 30 years who was, uh, was with us at the beginning in 88. She did um, $100,000 of business a year and was 20% of our GDC. She was our top producer at $100,000. Of course, the average in the industry at that time was about $35,000. Really? The average independent broker-dealer rep. At that time, independent, I'm talking about 19, late 80s, basically independent world was where all the people that couldn't make it at the wire firms go. And now we know that you know the majority of independent advisors could be at a wire firm if they wanted to be. So it's a very different world, but I'll stop there. So we don't uh, on that subject and we can continue on. No, thank you. That was wonderful. No, I was just going to say, Eric, I knew uh, most of that story, but I'm going to tell you the part I did not know is that your wife kind of got you into this business through her PR work. I didn't know that part of the story. So that, um, which is another reason why Andrew and I are doing this, because I think we just, we learn through all the conversations. So that was that was great well, to hear. The reason you didn't know is I just made that up. <laughs> <laughs> That's all PR. It's all yeah, PR. I don't even have a broker dealer. <laughs> <laughs> you, you talked a lot about how your you know vision how it, how um, how really it, you were focused in on you know finding a way to say yes, and that was really you know what grew and you know kind of. Um, May Cambridge, you know, who we are today. When you think about where we're at 2021, we're all excited about, you know, kind of the next evolutions. And I think we would all agree that not just the global pandemic, but just in general, our industry is in an evolution stage. Love to hear more about your vision and what you think those of us in this industry need to know and be thinking about when it comes to the future. Well, yeah, well, certainly there's so many different areas you could talk about, about the future, clearly. And some of the earlier shows that you have had already covered things like technology, which is just totally transformative. You know, fintech is uh, a huge growth area in the stock market and in our space. And, uh, you know, in many ways, you could say we're basically a technology company, you know. We're not really because we have hundreds of people that use technology and to service the advisors, but um, we spend upwards of 20 plus million a year uh, on technology in our budget. So 
besides technology, I think I also heard that uh, Greg talked earlier about acquisitions and certainly acquisitions are really big in all industries right now, part because private equity has so much money floating around, but certainly we're seeing where more and more of the small broker dealers, and this has been going on for 15 years, and most of them are going out of business. They just can't keep with it. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see ourselves actually acquiring you know, several small broker dealers a year. When I say small, we're talking $10 million to $50 million of business, which puts them at 1% to 5% of our size. Well, as most of you know, uh, a number of our enterprises are that big or bigger. And so most of them will actually become enterprises because it's interesting. If I look at the enterprises that have been part of, when I say enterprises, I mean large groups like TAG, the Mm -hmm. large enterprises have been growing very rapidly. Interestingly, when you look at most of these small broker dealers that we talk to, most of them have not grown in 10 years. It's a very tough environment to be a small firm. Even us. Eric, I'm sorry to cut you off. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, enterprises have been the place to be in the last 15 years. And they've, in my mind, basically replaced standalone broker dealers. Let's face it, if it was 20 years ago and TAG was doing the amount of business they're doing today, they probably would have formed their own broker dealer. Mm -hmm. But now broker dealers that are doing $250 million of business a year are not going to survive. And if we stayed the same size we are today, a billion dollars in revenue, I wouldn't be surprised if in 10 years we would need to sell. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's not our intention to stay the same size. And certainly with people like TAG growing the way they are, they help us grow. But we've gone from a cottage industry of small players to an industry that is very institutional. And basically, we're down to four or five firms that we compete with. I mean, there are more out there, but those are the, the four or five survivors. And it's our goal to make sure we're one of them. Um, and one of the ways we do it is to have lots of choices of how people do business. But more and more, we're seeing the enterprise version. Firms like TAG become a higher and higher percentage of our total business because a standalone single advisor out on his own is having a harder time competing in general. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that there aren't plenty of successful ones out there. And we've got quite a few at Cambridge, but it used to be 90% of our business was one or two or three reps working in their own little group. And that's a much smaller world right now mm-hmm. than it was then. And the enterprises and so on are growing. When 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 we talk about acquisitions here on the advisor level, what Greg was talking about, you know, he and I and Val got to be educated on that. And we talk about the metrics that are different. I'd say, what do you look at from that broker dealer level though? Because I, I would... Just making you shouldn't assume because we know what happens when you assume. But I, but I, I have to believe that it, it's it's somewhat the same thing in terms of well, what's the longevity of the business? What is the business? What's the risk that we're taking on with that? And how do we pay the owners whenever they sell it? You know, same thing on the advisor side. Okay, well, what's the risk in that practice? What's the average age of that practice? What's the revenue? And how am I going to pay that person? Kind of a thing. Is it is it generally the same? I know that's that's yeah. that's very broad, but I mean, you know, it's yeah. it, it, it's no, I, yes, I'd say that the what's going on with acquisitions, you know, it, twenty years ago, it started twenty five years ago now, it started in the broker dealer side. Um, there's firms that 
don't even exist anymore, um, other than as part of other firms that had bought 30 broker dealers even 10 years ago. And they've been now acquired for, for example, securities, uh, Sun America is an example mm, yeah. of one of these that became part of uh, the AIG network. And then that was sold and it's called advisor group now. So this has been going on for 25 years in the broker dealer space. The only difference is there's less and less left these days and bigger and bigger ones are happening. Billion dollar ones are happening rather than, you know, 5 million, 10 million here and there. Um, but certainly both in the fee-only RIA space and in our space, it's been going on seriously maybe 10 years, but especially in the last two or three years, you're seeing more and more of it, especially since the average advisor's age is higher. And yes, they are very parallel. It's the same thing, economies of scale, you know, people retiring wanting to get their money out. There's one, there's a few less complexities on an, in, if you're, if one of your advisors is buying another advisor, there's some things that are simpler than what we're doing. If we were to buy our broker dealer, we got two things. One is the owners want to get paid. And two, are the advisors actually going to come if you don't pay them? So it's mm -hmm. like there's a balancing act of how much the owners want to take, but they're not going to get paid if the advisors don't move. And as soon as the word's out that it's happening, there's going to be other competitors in trying to take those advisors and so on. So that's one extra piece that's usually not involved. So it's a simpler transaction. If you win the heart and mind of another advisor, you don't have to worry. Well, most of the time his clients are going to follow mm -hmm. and you're, you're going to structure the deal. So you don't pay if the clients don't follow. If it's a bro, if it's an advisor from another firm, usually what people do is they bring the advisor over he brings over all the clients and then they do the sale or, or the sale may be all set up, but it doesn't trigger until the clients come. And then, you know, you've got the clients. So there's some fine points like that, but yes, the, the basically the same situation and the need for scale and, uh, or just, it's a great way to grow if you find the right fit. And that's really with us, with broker dealers is very similar to with advisors. If you have a, another advisor that you don't really fit with, your business model is very different, your view of the world is very different, you shouldn't try to win it by paying more money than the other guy. We always offer less money than every other competitor of ours when we're buying a broker-dealer. We just don't have the deep pockets behind us and we can't make the numbers work because it's our money, not other people's money. And so in our case... It has to be a great fit or it's not going to happen. And usually it's the same great fit that causes people to join your group or Cambridge. That is, they value our open architecture, their ability to reach the senior people. And we're actually trying to do what's best for advisors every day versus obviously a private equity firm is doing what's best for the advisors until they sell you to the next guy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it always seems to be a, a a pretty solid balance as we work through that. We're, we're we're not we don't like buying business. You don't like buying business. It sometimes does feel like it's almost like a pyrrhic war, of like, all right, so we're outbidding with this and this, and then the end of it, well, we what what do we really end up with? Um, because we can't capitalize like you know some of the other uh, publicly traded groups out there and just raise more cash and so forth. We're we're, I mean, we are, uh, we're small business. We're, you know, the, the, the heartbeat of independence, as it were. Yeah, and no, I think that um, it's true at the individual advisor level. It's true at 
your level of TAG, the group, the consolidation of that group, and then it's true at our level too. We've always tried to win with value added, not by giving the biggest amount of dollars. You know, so far it's worked. And what it also does is it protects you. The few deals that we've seen, we've seen several hundred acquisitions take place at Cambridge, many of which we were involved in helping structure and finance for our advisors, but others that weren't. The few that have gone awry in a big way were the ones where the advisor was the top bidder and was going to get it at all costs. Because not only did Mm -hmm. they pay too much, but it told you what mattered to the seller. So by by nature, if you're going to pay the most, you're going to get a seller that all they care about is getting the most themselves. And so when somebody's going to take less money from you than from somebody else because he likes your business model and the two of you trust each other, the odds of success go way up. Mm-hmm. So we've always said, well, every advisor that ever has joined us got less money than they could have at all our competitors. Now, you can't make it so much less that they're like, this guy offered me a million dollars and you're giving me $5.95. But if you're the top bidder, you have to accept that the person on the other side, it's only about money. And if they can figure out how to get more for themselves and less for you, they may do it. Not all of them, but some percent would. And so it's a, you miss deals and you're saying, boy, that guy would have been perfect at Cambridge or, and wouldn't it be a great by recruiting him or buying him. But again, the person tells you something about themselves if they go somewhere else for an extra $10,000 or whatever. Sure. You know, Eric, that's kind of interesting that you're going to share in um, kind of how we see, um, not just us, but, you know, kind of that that good fit standpoint, and kind of how you can um, look at and get that sense if it's a good fit. As you think about all the financial advisors that are out there right now, um, I guess what advice would you give them? And as you know, they're sitting there looking at, you know, consolidation has been going on for the last 20 years, as you said, and it continues to evolve and it continues to move forward. What, what advice would you give a financial advisor right now sitting here today? You know, it's somewhat like an advisor. My role with advisors is very similar to the advisor's role with their client. You give different advice to different advisors based on what matters to them. If somebody's 62 years old and plans on retiring in three years, then they're probably not going to do any acquisitions in the meantime. But they could learn what things people that are buying are looking for so they could potentially adjust their business model a little bit to make themselves a more attractive seller and also make the transition easier. And so that would be for someone close to retirement, somebody that's much younger and wants to take over the world, so to speak. You know, there's two business models for that, basically. There's what TAG's doing, which is the enterprise. I call that like being the um, CEO of a hospital. You have thousands of people working for you, and the hospital makes money based on a little bit off each of those people. Then that's, in effect, you could say what Cambridge does, and you could say that's, in effect, what TAG does. But obviously, even underneath TAG, an advisor could do the same thing. There could be a sub OSJ or sub enterprise underneath TAG that had 50 advisors in it. But the, and the other option is really to build your own ent- own practice, which of course can be done organically. Organically is always best because it's going to be cheaper. Obviously, you don't have to spend a 
whole bunch of money, but there's only for many advisors, there's only so fast you can grow. And so the opportunity to do acquisitions, especially again, if somebody's in their 30s or 40s or early 50s, they might be able to do a series of them over time and take a practice that's 200,000 today and turn it into $2 million down the road and then hire staff to help them run it. So one model is, I guess I said, the hospital CEO and how that model, the other model is the brain surgeon. You've got $2 million of business. When clients come in, there's five other people on the team that do a whole bunch of stuff. They prep the patient, they get them ready. You come in, boom, boom, you do one hour surgery, you're gone. Somebody else closes them up. Somebody else follows up and makes sure they're good a month later. So there's two directions where the greatest success happened for advisors. One is, you know, running a larger organization and getting a piece of all that business. Another is to grow your own practice, but then you have to be willing to be very different. You're not going to be doing everything from A to Z. You're just going to be doing the three most important things, whatever they may be in your world, J, K, and L. And other people are going to, you're going to put really good people around you to help you be the brain surgeon rather than the general practitioner, so to Mm -hmm. speak. And some people should never do it. They just love doing everything themselves, having control. They don't want any employees. Great. We can help you become more efficient and maybe go from 250,000 to 500 by using some technology and being a little creative, but you have to know yourself and what you want. So one is you know, just grow gradually and just enjoy life and you're pretty happy the way you are. One is to build an enterprise within the enterprise, so to speak. And then the other is to build, and this could include acquisitions, take a practice that's 250 today when you're 40 and is going to be two or three or five million, you know, down the road. And the acquisitions will help with that. And you'll have built, in either way, you could be building something worth $10, $15 million. But it's only if you love doing that. Mm-hmm. Some people, it, it's not appealing to them. And you just, in my mind, the key is to be conscious of the decisions you're making, in many cases, without even knowing you're making them. Because of our personal nature, our style, we may be wondering why everybody else is growing faster than us. And the reason is probably certain comfort factors that we have that it's okay, but if you're aware of them, you say, oh, that's why they're growing faster, but I don't care because I work 25 hours a week and they work 50 or whatever the reason may be, or they just know they don't like to hire people. But in some cases, you're also, if you become aware of it, you're also able to change it and take yourself to the next level. So I think a lot of people would like to be at the next level and they're not sure what's holding them back and to some degree, it's themselves. Mm-hmm. And we all have our limitations, but most of them are in our minds that we we have there. The more you're aware of them, the better things go. I became aware that I wasn't really good at structuring complex systems. I was better on the vision and the big picture. So I made a point of not hiring people like me, but people opposite of me who could fill in the other areas. And you'll see them, if you all know some of the senior people in the company, they balance my strengths with other strengths. And then we learn from each other and we both get a little better at those things. Mm-hmm. Well, I rambled a little bit there, so we'll see. No, that's there. okay. But um, Eric, we are, we are, uh, we're coming up to time. 
this is all wonderful. Um, we, we really appreciate you oh, uh, sure. coming in and doing this. Uh, we hope that we can have you back another day soon and we could keep this going. Maybe maybe we'll all see each other in uh, in Nashville. Uh, God willing, everything works out just fine for uh, Ignite this year. Um, but you know, we have we have one more question for you, and I'm I'm gonna let I'm gonna let Val ask that question, and we'll wrap it up with that. Okay. All right. So one of the questions we like to ask Eric is, what is a habit that you have that you could share with us that um, you enjoy? A habit you enjoy, or one that's really makes a positive impact, you know, on your day to day. Well. I would say two things. Uh, every morning I meditate, which helps me settle down and be clear on what really matters versus what we think matters. Mm -hmm. And then also every, almost every day, I take a long walk with my wife and now with our new dog, which is a whole new thrill for us. So um, that balance hopefully keeps me healthy, but it also lets me start today in a clear space. I always felt in the early days of the company um, that there were some things I couldn't do that others could. So many people can work 50, 60 hours a week for years and be fine. If I worked much more than 40 hours, I would get totally burned out. It's just how my body works. And so I decided from the beginning, I'd have to get plenty of rest and be really clear. So even if I only worked three hours, I was going in the right direction because there's 900 people at Cambridge that if I'm pointing the ship in the wrong direction, doesn't matter how fast they're rowing. So I think for many of the advisors, it's that way themselves, whether they have support staff or they're just alone, finding a way, whatever it is for that person to be calm, settled and clear, self-aware, and then, you know, whatever it may be, but a lot of advisors people in general aren't always going, they're doing stuff out of habit that isn't helping them get where they really want to be. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously they wouldn't be doing it if they were completely aware of it. And certainly I'm not, I mean, I make those mistakes too, but I think finding something in your life that you can be, to help you be clear, happy, somewhat balanced so that when you rush off to the office, you're going in the right direction. I like that um, purposeful habits because like you said there's there's a lot of habits that we have maybe that don't drive purpose um, or yeah. drive us in the direction that we want to go so yeah we you. always like to I, I think we've said on here before be intentional mm -hmm. be intentional right. yeah. and uh eric i think we're gonna we're gonna wrap it up there uh for, for the people who listen at home or, or watch this, you know, there's no magic here. We're actually just going to stop the recording and then we turn this thing off uh, because that that's what we do. We have a little bit of a wrap up. So uh, for, uh, for myself, for Val, thank you, Eric. Thanks so much for spending some time with us uh, today. We greatly appreciate it. We hope to see you soon. Uh, we hope you stay warm out where you are. Val, you got to figure that out. Being cold isn't fun. You, you got to figure it out. Maybe so. Phoenix is in my future. We'll see. Yeah, I hope and so. I look forward to uh, doing it again if that works out. I'd love to do this. Wonderful. Okay. Thanks, Thanks everybody. We'll see you all soon. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening to The Hike. Securities offered through Registered Representatives of Cambridge Investment Research, Inc., a broker-dealer, and member FINRA SIPC. Advisory services offered through Cambridge Investment Research Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. 
TAG Advisors and Cambridge are separate entities.